Heavenly Father, you are absolutely great, remarkable, amazing. And we sing your praises. We, we speak of your greatness. And we don't want to forget you right now. We don't want to forget the fact that we're not just here to hear a sermon. We're here to be moved by you, transformed by you. That we're here to meet with you and for you to then send us out to serve you, to honor you, to build your kingdom. And this book is your revelation. It's your mind, your thoughts. You saw fit to share with us. So we, we need your help to come to it humbly and to learn from it. We don't just want to learn information. We want to be transformed by the truth. And so that's, that's our prayer right now. And, and my prayer, Lord, is that I would disappear behind the pulpit in the most literal sense. And all that we would hear is Christ's words. And this beautiful parable that we would meditate on what he's saying. Let the heaviness weigh on us and stay with us during the week. So be with the preacher and his limited abilities. Be with all of us. Again, we're not just here to listen to the sermon. We want to be moved by you, O oh Lord, by your spirit. And we're praying this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So please, would you turn in your Bibles, paper Bibles, to Luke chapter 12. We're going to go old school this morning. No PowerPoints, just the Bible. Back to the Bible, actually. And we'll just turn around in these pages. As you're turning into Luke chapter 12, please use your memory and remember that story in the life of David. When he met up with a man whose name is literally Fool, Nabal. A man who wanted to hold on to his stuff at all costs. He didn't want to even share a little bit with David. The last time we see him in the story, he's feasting, he's enjoying, and then he dies. That's kind of the backdrop for our parable this morning. A parable about a man who builds bigger barns to keep all this stuff. But then God calls him a fool when he dies. And we have to be careful not to oversimplify what's going on in this parable. That all Jesus is teaching is don't hold on to money too much. Don't try to make too much money. That's bad. Remember, parables are, are there to remove the veil a little bit and give us greater insight and depth into the mind of God. So if God is only saying, don't hold on to money, he's saying the same thing any religious leader can tell us. Jesus is not just any religious teacher. So when we move to, to Luke chapter 12, to better understand it, it would be good for us to look at the context as well. We're going to read actually verse 1 to 34. I know it's a lot of verses for this Sunday morning, but can we actually read too much scripture on a Sunday morning? Please someone say no. Thank you. So... I would like to ask you to stand, please, for the reading of God's inherent, infallible word as I read Luke 12, verse 1 to 34, and it's in the NESV, that, that what I'm using. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the rooftops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, 
has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, when the hairs of your head are all numbered, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before man, the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before man will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasts him against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, be not anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they never sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barns, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a, a smaller thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the fields today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will, you, will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink. No, be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and the th these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with muddy bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Thank you. You may be seated. So we find out that Jesus is with his disciples. 
the apostles teaching them, but a crowd is also forming around them. Kind of reminds of another moment in the life of Jesus that Matthew calls the Sermon on the Mount. Except it's not the same thing, even though some of the teachings are very similar, but some aren't. It's not like Luke is copying Matthew or Matthew is copying Luke, but that Jesus was always coming back to the same truth that they all needed to hear. He tells them about the dangers of these Pharisees, these hypocrites, and that they don't need to fear such men who can destroy the body, right? If you reject their teaching, they might want to destroy the body. Don't fear that. Instead, what you need to fear is the one that could throw you into eternal punishment. It's interesting that he goes from this fear of eternal punishment into then the trust of a heavenly father to provide here and now. Right? There's like something in between that happens between this fear of judgment and this insurance in God and is, of course, the gospel. It's the truth of not rejecting his name but embracing it because there's no other name being given to us. So even though he says it in a very simplified form, that they should acknowledge him and not reject him, we understand he is saying, you either receive me as the savior or you reject me. But that's the bridge between that fear of judgment and that assurance that God will provide for you as a heavenly father. It's me, I'm the bridge. And it's in that middle of that bridge that we have the parable. So like I said, this parable is way more than just don't hold on to money too much. It's part of this whole bridge concept that Jesus is giving them to make them go from fearing judgment to being reassured that God will provide. So it's very important, right? With that in mind, we start with verse 13. And it's interesting the way Luke presents this interrupter. Right? This person from the crowd, he's called someone in the crowd. No name. We don't actually even know his full problem. He just talks about his inheritance, but we don't know what it is exactly that's going on. The commentators try to figure it out, but I don't think we should. The whole point, and I believe the, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to just give us no information because anybody could have been that person. As someone in the crowd could have been anyone in the crowd. Anyone could put themselves in this person's feet. And so when you see this man and his primary desire, his big question for Jesus, it's all about here and now. My inheritance, my stuff. Isn't it striking though? Jesus is saying, fear eternal judgment. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, right here, right now, I got a problem. Yeah, 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 God, yeah, yeah, got that. But my problem, Jesus, my problem. That could be anybody. And we must resist the temptation of saying, oh, yeah, you mean those non-believers out there, right? I tell them about Jesus, and they say, ah, I don't have time for you, Jesus. I got problems. No, that, that someone could also be us, Right? God reveals his incredible truth through his word, through the preaching of his word, through the brothers and sisters. And we're like, yeah, 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 I, I know, I know this, but I got a problem right now. And I got something to deal with. It's hard, it's difficult. Kind of got quiet right here, right? Yeah, but we, there is a sense we should be able to put ourselves in this man's shoe and have that, because we can't have the same kind of reaction. We could also be that someone in the crowd. And so it's even more striking that his focus on the here and now brings him to say, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus, tell him what to do like I'm telling you what to do. But brazenness, right? Not, Rabbi, please help my situation. Give me some advice here. Bring a bit of a judgment, a big wisdom of the law. No, no, no. Tell him what to do like I'm telling you what to do. 
Again, when we're focused on our present situation, that's the bit the way we approach God, isn't it? Lord, you, you have to heal me here. You, you got to fix this problem here, right? The very notion helped me to honor you in the problem. What? No, no. You, you have to fix the problem. You got to do this, Lord. It, it, it kind of reverses what uh, Paul talks about in, in 2 Corinthians. You know, when he talks about how the uh, present, the, the momentary light affliction are overbalanced by the eternal weight of glory. Well, this kind of focus kind of shifts it around. No, this present heaviness is so much important that, that you know, that heavenly reality, like, yeah, 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 I got that. That's the attitude of this someone in the crowd. That's what kind of brings forth the parable, the, the, the problem that Jesus needs to fix. And like I said, any of us could be that someone in a crowd at any time. I'll confess, I've probably been there more than once, and I don't think I'm the only one. So what did you just say to this in verse 14? Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Here's where it gets interesting. The commentators were saying that the rabbis, the religious leaders, they actually were the judges of such matters. You see, because inheritance was a legal matter, the sense of the Mosaic law, and it was the religious leaders supposed to deal with that when there was a problem. So Jesus is saying, am I the judge? Well, technically, yeah. So it's weird that Jesus would ask such a question when the answer is, yes, you, you should be the judge in this situation. And it's not the first time that Jesus presents such a question or, or says such a thing that's kind of provocative and makes us think. Um, go back to John chapter 2, not literally turning, but in John chapter 2, the wedding of Cana, when a mother, his mother says, there's no more wine, Jesus. How does it, Jesus respond to that? Woman, my time hasn't come. Yet he still does the miracle, and John even calls that the first sign to prove that he's the Messiah. So I guess his time did come, but it wasn't? Like, what? Or, or that moment with his brothers, when they say, present yourself at the feast because you're supposed to be the Messiah. And he says, it's not my time yet. Yet he actually does go a little bit later. So was it his time or not? I believe that this, again, this question, am I the judge, is meant to provoke thought in that someone in the crowd, in that anybody listening right now. Remember who has true judgment over our souls? Right? The one who has the authority to throw us into eternal judgment? I believe by saying, am I the judge? He's trying to take that man's mind off the present reality and saying, wait, focus on that eternal thing I was talking about before. You want me to judge about the present thing, I want you to focus on the judge of all the earth. And the parable, again, it's about that, bringing the focus back on God. Even it hits the point home when he continues his teaching and says in verse 15, take care and be on your guard. These are synonyms. The same expression saying kind of the same thing. To, to take care is to perceive, have literally the minds of your heart opened. While to be on your guard is to be vigilant, physicalized, so physical, mental, spiritualized, be alert, be focused on something very important. And it's against all covetousness. Covetousness is basically desiring more, not being satisfied with what we have. 
A good uh, counterbalance to that would be contentment, right? Contentment is all about the fact that I have more, that I have more or that I have less. I am content. Covetousness says that I have more, that I have less, I still need more. Contentment is all about this inner peace, this inner assurance. I don't need the things around me. Covetousness says, I want the stuff around me. I must have these things. And I know that Jesus then talks about uh, possessions at the end of the verse. But as we keep moving along, we'll see more words that kind of say the same thing. He'll talk about plentifully and and. Uh, harvest, and he'll talk even about goods, or what it literally means just inherently good things, whatever they are. And the fact that he talks about all covetousness brings me back kind of the two, to the 10 words, the 10 commandments, that we are not to covet, not just the stuff of our neighbor, but even his wife, his children, his servants, his life, basically. So when he says all covetousness, I take it as all covetousness. Just saying this that I have, not enough. Got to be more. Got to have that child. Got to have that wife or husband. Got to have that better job. Got to have, got to have. Jesus, watch out for that. And he explains why. Let's pay attention to why that's important. He says, for. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. That's a powerful phrase. Life itself, it's building blocks, it's reason for being, it doesn't consist in the stuff. And again, don't just think of things in itself. It could be any kind of things in your life that gives you an identity, any kind of success, any things you might be looking for and longing for, that's not life. We know as Christian, life is in Christ, right? Is the fact that we are loved by the Father because we are in His Son. This identity, that's life. Doesn't consist in the things, not even the good, religious, spiritual things. That's not life. God is life. Christ is life. That's why we need to watch for all this attitude of saying, if I only I had, if only this got fixed, if only this got better. Watch out for that because that's not life. Jesus says. And again, this parable will help us understand that. I hope you're starting to see why this parable is way more than just don't make money. And when we begin this parable, verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. There's something very fascinating in the how this parable opens up. And as you ponder that, I'm going to take a sip of water. Do you notice there's no God in that phrase? It's not God provided for this man. It's not God blessed the land of this man. The land did this. And we would say Mother Nature did this. It's interesting because the rest of the parable seems that God's absent until the end. There's nobody other than this man in this story. We can almost picture this man looking at all his harvest saying, look at what I did. All my hard work. My land did this. So it's interesting. Jesus starts this parable right away taking God out of the picture. The land did this. This land gave him plentifully. Again, a word that means anything and everything that is just abundance. And he taught 
to himself in verse 17. I find it interesting because when you go through the book of Luke, many times, almost every time when somebody's thinking to themselves, having a little self-thought, it's a bad thing. I'll give you just one of the best examples. When the paraplegic is, is brought down from, from, the, from, the floor, from, uh, from the sky, from the ceiling, and the, Jesus forgives his sin, and the religious leader thought to themselves, how dare he? Every other time Luke presents people thinking to themselves, it's a bad thing. So as, as readers, especially the first readers, they should be going, oh, wait, this is going to be bad. And it's interesting, he could have just said, and he thought, right? That, that would have been enough grammatically, just say, and he thought. But he has to add to himself, a selfishness in that simple word, right? And as we keep going in the parable, we keep seeing a lot of I and me, a lot of selfishness, a lot of meanness in that. So again, it's not just a, to himself and this throwaway word. None of the words of Jesus can be thrown away. There's something powerful in the way he presents this man's thought. He thought to himself. He had his own plans. I don't need nobody else to help me out here. I'm going to figure out myself what to do here. A lot of self-thought. A bit like our culture is a lot of self, right? A lot of individuality. And that's why it's sad when it starts seeping into the church. My walk with God. My family. My ministry. No. Collective. God has a people, not a person. So this self-thought is pretty damning for this man. So what did he think exactly? What's his big plan? What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Interesting. All he wants to do is just keep it for himself. No thought right now of maybe my neighbors didn't have a good harvest. Maybe I could help them, right? No planning of how can I maybe bring this to the temple because there's like, Maybe a tithes that I owe to the Lord. No, no, no. How can I keep this for myself? How can I store it? Me. Myself. I. And this idea of storing it, it, it comes back again in the next verse. It's all about keeping it. It's mine. And he said in verse 18, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grains and my goods. Again, it's, it's more than just the harvest right now, right? All of his goods, all my stuff, all the good stuff that I have. It's interesting. He doesn't want any help. I mean, this present day and age, we can rent machines that will help us do maybe self-work, even on our homes. But back then, to, build up, to break down, to build up their barns, you need help. But no, I'm going to do this. I don't need anybody. And it's interesting because the way he goes about it is very wise, actually. Proverbs would uh, you know, really be grateful, uh, really applaud this man for his work. Because it was wise for him not to build more barns. Because building more barns would be taking more territory that could not be planted later for harvest. So you see, by just taking what he already had as a land for her barn, breaking it down, milk it a little bit bigger, he's not taking that much land. It's actually very smart and wise. Like I said, Proverbs will be 100% behind that. Proverbs 31 talks about the wise woman. She would do that kind of stuff. So it, it, it's interesting that God, uh, Jesus, is presenting such wisdom, and yet it's supposed to be a bad thing because of the selfishness behind it, right? Because God is not anywhere in that. 
And like I said, we, we shouldn't be too quick to kind of distance ourselves and say, yeah, that guy, man, he's so selfish, building his own barns, thinking of himself. Whew, I'm not like that. Not because we, we might build one wall of, you know, for a future retirement and one wall for our life insurance. We have kids, you know, and one, one wall for the house because we have to think of a house, good investment, and, you know, one wall for, for uh, maybe a vacation. I, I need some vacation, man. And of course, a cushion, because it's good to have a cushion, especially if the last couple of years. Oh, wait a second, I just built my own big barn. And again, none of that is even bad. That's not the point of the parable, saying it's bad to plan and to think and to do these things. That's not the point. But like I said, God is really absent from any of this. And, and so he, he continues in verse 19 and says, And I will say to my soul, what does that mean? I will say to my soul, sip of water first. Now, I might say things that will bother some people. I'm sorry if I do, but I know that sometimes in the Christian circles, we tend to separate the human being in three parts. Soul, spirit, body, right? And we say the soul does this, and the spirit does that, and the body does this. But the scripture never really speaks like that. Really, does it define what the spirit and the soul is? Actually, when the Bible speaks, majority of the time, it says that we are body and spirit. We have two parts, physical and spiritual, inside and outside. And when the soul is presented, actually, it's presented as the whole person. One striking example, Genesis. God took Adam the body, breathed spirit in him, and he became a soul. And many times over, it talks about how 10,000 souls went to war or died over here. It's the whole person. Now, why am I saying this? It has no, not because of theological debates, because I believe if that's the case, then this man is talking about his, I'm fully and completely, spiritually as much as physically, satisfied right now. We see it at the end of the verse. First, he talks about eating and drinking, physical, but then it's all relaxing and being merry. That's very spiritual or emotional in nature. In other words, again, I am completely satisfied by my present reality. But what is Jesus trying to do throughout his entire teaching? It's not about the physical people. It's about the spiritual. And yet, again, we see it in this world. And sometimes it seeps in the church. This notion that we will be satisfied spiritually and physically by the things, by the success, by the getting of this world. Like this man. Like I said, we are all, there's someone in the crowd sometimes. We all fall into this trap of thinking, my complete satisfaction, spiritual and physical, can be found in, put whatever you want here. Like he says, I have ample goods. Again, it's interesting, Jesus doesn't use ample grains. He could have ample possessions. He said, goods, right? Everything. I got a wife and kids now. I'm good. Interesting what God says to this, right? But God... My two favorite words in the whole Bible. But God said to him, fool. Don't forget, in the Bible, a fool is someone who denies God exists. One who lives as though God doesn't matter. One who doesn't believe in God. And like we said, all through we saw that this man has no focus on God at all. God is absent from this parable and from this man's life. And that's why he calls him a fool. But what is interesting is Jesus never tells us this man is of Hebrew descent. And usually in, in Jesus' parables, 
it is actually Jewish people that he's presenting them. So if this man is a believer and lives as if God is not a believer, he will be what theologians like to call a practical atheist. In other words, I do believe God exists. I live with God by going to the temple or the church, but the rest of my life is that God doesn't exist. A practical atheist. Again, are we willing to put ourselves in that shoe and say sometimes that's the way we are? Or we come to church, we sing his praises, we say the amen during the sermons, and then we go home during the week and we live as if God doesn't matter with our time, with our money, with our lives. Fool. That's what God says to that. Fool. This night, your soul is required of you. The word required, he talks about debt. Because we all belong to God. He's the creator. He's the master potter. He made us. This is why he has the authority at that last moment when people present themselves to him to take them and to send them to judgment. They have disobeyed me and they belong to me. You are indebted to me. You forgot that, mister. Your soul is required of you. You have a debt. And I like that tongue-in-cheek, mocking type of question God then tells him. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Right? I and my barns and my stuff, nobody's going to get some. Well, guess what? Everybody's going to get it but you. It's a bit like Nabal, right? Remember that story? Like I said before? He didn't want to share even a little bit with David, but then he died. And most probably Abigail got it all, and David ended up getting it all when he married her. So interesting, right? You didn't want to give him a little. God gave him all of your stuff. Fool. Fool. Now, what I find interesting when I read through that parable a couple of times is that we don't really know if he actually did any of this. Right? It starts with he had this thought, this plan, but it never tells us he actually executed the plan. I'm going to build bigger barns, and I'm going to put my stuff in there, and then I'm going to get rejoiced, but it's possible in the very day he's planning, God says, it's over. All your plans. You don't even get to actually take that first sip of wine. You don't get to see your beautiful barn finished. It's over. It doesn't tell us in the story. Maybe he did all of this, and then he died, or maybe he never even got to do any of this. Either way, he's a fool. Again, can we put ourselves in this man's shoe? All these plans and projects and all these efforts, and God could say, it's over right now. And yet we're Christians. We're supposed to know that, huh? We're supposed to realize life is short. God can take our lives anytime. Do, do we live like we really believe that, though? Paul kind of talks about that in First Thessalonians, doesn't he? All these plans, if the Lord permits, right? This is when Jesus drops the mic. Or if you prefer, he picks up his two-edged sword and really jams into the heart of everybody listening right now. In verse 21, he says, so is the one. Remember in the beginning, I kept saying how someone in the crowd could be anybody? Jesus is also saying the same thing. Any one of you could be this person right now. So is the one, any one of you, who lays up treasures for himself. We have to resist the temptation to end the phrase here. Jesus is telling us not to make money and not to succeed, period. No, he didn't. He actually kept saying something. 
He said, and. See, that and kind of counterbalances everything. That and makes it so the rest, the building of barns, is not necessarily a bad thing. That and is incredibly important when you want to get what Jesus is saying. And is not rich toward God. That's the counterbalance, see? That's what makes the building and the planning and the doing and the succeeding possible. Even God honoring, being rich in God. But what does that mean? I'll let you wait while I dig. I believe the answer is twofold, especially when you focus on the fact there's two groups of people around Jesus right now. I guess you have the disciples, those who have committed their lives to Christ and who will understand later and become believers, but then you have the crowd also, who are in a sense being called to enter into the discipleship. Enter, if you will, the narrow way. And he's telling them, you need to realize, people, life does not consist in things, not even the good religious things. Because one day you will die, and you will meet with the judge of all the earth, and he will ask you, why should I not send you to eternal judgment? What are you going to answer him? Jesus tells us, though, of course. Because after this parable, as I keep reading, he continues to explain with some divine commentary what this parable is all about, what life is all about, right? Seeking the kingdom. And as he says in the Sermon on the Mount, seeking the kingdom and its righteousness. And that's an important key, of course, because we know the righteousness of God is Jesus Christ. We understand it's about his life, death, and resurrection. That's why he talked about not denying him. Not just saying, I don't like Jesus. It's really denying the fact that he's the only way into the kingdom. Making them understand that when you step before this great judge and he may ask that question, why should I not send you to eternal punishment? You must be able to answer, I do deserve it, but Jesus paid for that. He's the one that took that punishment on himself. He drank the full cup of your wrath. He was rejected by you. And I trust that. I believe that. I put my whole hope in that alone. Jesus becomes that door in which I come into your kingdom. That's why. That, I believe, is the first way to be rich towards God. That riches of his righteousness covering us through Christ. What if those who have entered the kingdom, the disciples themselves, or us, even this morning, does this not apply to us? Oh, it's a parable for non-believers. Good. Let's go home. No, of course not. We're also called to be rich in God. Like I said, the rest of what Jesus has to teach them is for the disciples. He says in verse 22, and he said to his crowd? No, he said to his disciples. This is for you guys. You, you need to understand this for your Christian life. Even though they didn't know about Christian life yet, they're going to find out later. But still, this is for you guys. This is for us right now. So what does it mean? Well, I think the Apostle Paul can help us even more with some divine commentary of his own. Keep your finger here and come to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And yes, Paul will talk about rich people. Please don't say, I'm not rich. Well, first of all, we're part of the rich minority of the West, so yes, we are. But even then, what Paul has to say to these men and women, it's also for us today. No matter what you call, consider yourself rich or not, 
So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we will start in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or powerful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Again, you don't have to be rich to understand the fallacy of putting your trust in here and now, in stuff, in success, in whatever you want. We understand that it's wrong to put our trust in our hopes in these uncertain things, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Stop here a second. This again strikes at that false notion that what Jesus is actually getting at is it's wrong to succeed. It's wrong to make money. It's wrong to build bigger barns. No, because God provides. You are to enjoy that. That's not wrong in and of itself. But he does continue, though. He continues by saying in verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Let's stop here again. Because the proverb again and again tells us that when you give to the poor, and you help those who are suffering, you're actually giving to God. Right? Jesus says the same thing when he's going to separate the goats and the sheep, right? Those who are the sheep, the disciples, are those who are giving to him by giving to others and helping others. So that's part of being rich in God. He continues in verse 19 and says, Thus, storing up th treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Because again, life is not consistent of stuff, of now, of success. Now, the true life is in Christ, as we've seen. So when we get back to our text, and we'll finish with Timothy, when we get back to our text, and, and Jesus kind of rounding it all up, right? He's finishing this part of his teaching. And I say that because when you get to verse 35, you see that he's moving on to other stuff, and he's going to present other parables also. But he, he kind of rounds it up by saying in, in verse 33, a bit the same things that Paul, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. If God is your treasure, if being with him forever is your treasure, then your heart will be there and you'll be rich in God. The rest will come. But be careful right now to think that the, the whole point of this parable is give more money, do more stuff, do more ministries. No, it's not. It's not about doing. It's about a mindset. It's about a perception, like he said, that realizes that, that life is not about this stuff or this now. It's about the heavenly reality. We are already seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of God in Christ Jesus that we've been redeemed at a great price, the blood of Christ. And we belong as doulos, as slaves to this great king as we enter into his kingdom. That everything we have in life, money, time, whatever it is, your own body even, was given to you as a steward to manage it for the king. It's having this mindset and being watchful also, not to think that, yeah, I got this. I got it. Yeah, yeah, I'm in. Got it. Good. Because the fact is, we're going back out there. We have day-to-day -day lives. We have situations that are going to show up. We have all these temptations. We're going to forget this. 
Let's be honest. We're going to forget some of this when things happen. We're going to start planning. We're going to start getting afraid. We're going to start telling Jesus what to do again. We need to be reminding ourselves of this over and over again. What mindset I need. Remind ourselves, as I read just this morning, whatever you do, eat or drink, whatever it is, do it all to the glory of God. Can we really say that every time we do something? Everywhere we use our money? Probably not, huh? May the Lord help us to do that. May he give us the mindset that was in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we just want to thank you for your son, for the fact that you gave your only begotten son to redeem us sinners, to bring us into your kingdom, to make us your children. And then again, you are so generous. You give to us to be your stewards, to manage what you've given us, to use it to your glory. And Lord, we need your help to do that. Not to do more, Lord, but to always remind ourselves that it's not about here and now. Life is Christ. Life is you. We are of the kingdom and we want to live as such. So please help us in these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.